My name is Christina and I am excited to be here with you to look at Mark chapter 5, which is such a beautiful chapter. Um, But before we do, we just want to make sure that if you are new here, we want to say we are really glad that you're here. And the ushers at this point are going to be walking down the aisles. They have a gift for you. So if you're new, just raise your hand. They'll see you. It's a journal uh, for Mark, the gospel that we're going in. There's some information about our church and opportunity on how to get a free drink from the well. So just Uh, Snag their attention now, and if you'd rather wait, you can also grab one at the connect wall at the end of the service, but we're really glad you're here. Welcome, um, and we hope you enjoy being with us this morning. Before we get into Mark 5, I want to tell you a story about my ninth grade English teacher, Mr. Tatunchi, because, which is a great last name, right? Wherever you are, Mr. Tatunchi. He made me come alive as a student in a way that I had not yet experienced. Mr. Tatunchi taught English literature and I remember we were reading A Tale of Two Cities and I liked the story but I more liked what Mr. Tatunchi was teaching me which was that if you learn how to analyze literature you can learn about literary devices, uh, symbolism, repetition, parallelism, metaphor, similes, all the literary devices, you start to see that there's a dimension happening underneath the surface level of the story that gives you a greater and deeper insight into some of the things going on in the story. And I thought this was so cool. I remember just feeling uh, so awakened and realizing you could analyze literature like this. And the reason that I say this is because the Bible is also a piece of literature. It's different than any other literature because it's God's inspired word, but he chose to speak to us through pieces of literature. So the Bible has similar features. It's got different authors, different genres, and we use literary devices to help us analyze and understand some of what's going on in our passage. Today in Mark chapter five, we are going to see some literary devices, namely repetition and also a Markan sandwich, which is called an intercalation. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but these things will help us pull out some themes that are going on underneath the surface of these really beautiful and magnificent stories. So the four themes that we're gonna talk about are gonna be on a slide on the screen. But before we do that, I have to say, We have to reach back to chapter four and grab the very end of chapter four and include it in what we're doing because the four stories together, chapter four and then the three in chapter five today, kind of consist of a unit that will help us understand these three themes, these four themes. So we'll be spending our time in chapter five, but just note the end of chapter four is also a part of this. So the four themes that we're gonna talk about, number one, we're gonna talk about Jesus's messianic authority and power. Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and as such, he has power and authority over all things. And this is probably the most predominant theme in all of these stories. We're going to see that Jesus has the power and the authority over nature from the end of chapter 4, which is a story where Jesus is with his disciples, and they're in a boat coming to where we are now today, and there's a storm on the sea, and it's raging, and they think they're going to die. And so they go and wake Jesus up, saying, don't you care that we're gonna perish? And he challenges their lack of faith. And then he calms the sea and the storm, and they're left saying, who is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? That story shows us he's got the power and the authority over nature. Then we move to chapter five, and we see he's got the power and the authority over the spiritual realm. We've seen Jesus already exercise demons in Mark in Mark thus far, but here we've got him dealing with a new dimension. There's a slew of demons we see, and he's got the power and the authority over that. Then we see him heal a sick woman. He's got the power and the authority over sickness. And lastly, he raises a child from the dead. He's got the power and the authority over death. 
So nature, the spiritual realm, sickness, death, this inclusivity of Jesus' power and authority over all things. That's the first theme. The second theme is that in each of our stories, we're gonna encounter people who are in absolutely desperate and hopeless situations. Mark's gonna give us a lot of language to describe some of these situations. Some of them are on the brink of death. Some of them have tried everything or people have tried to help them and they can't do it. But we see Jesus meets these people in these times of hopelessness and desperation and he is able to bring healing and restoration. The third theme is that Jesus brings healing to all stratas of society. So in our stories, we're gonna see Jesus interact with people from different levels of their social society. We're gonna see him first with his disciples in the end of chapter four. Those are his, his friends. Then in chapter five, we've got him with a Gentile demon-possessed man. That is a category of social person, especially for a Jewish person. Then we've got him interacting with a high profile Jewish male religious leader. That's a person of authority and respect in their community. Then we've got him interacting with a woman who's been unclean for 12 years with a bleeding disorder. She is low in their society. And then we've got him interacting with a young girl who he raises from the dead. It's this all-inclusive picture of Jesus reaching out to all different kinds of people, but he shows no favoritism. He's accessible to them all. He's compassionate to all of them, and he's able to bring healing to all of them. So that's the third theme. And the fourth is that there is a call to faith. All these stories in some way, shape, or form are gonna call us as readers to faith, as Jesus calls the people he's interacting with, to faith in who he is, in his messianic authority and power. That's the overarching one. Do we believe Jesus is who he says he is? And the people he's interacting with, he's gonna challenge them in that direction as well. So those are our four themes. We'll come back to them again at the end, but we're gonna pick it up in verse one and go through chapter five and see how these themes unfold. So starting in verse one, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. We're gonna pause right there and we're not gonna go this slow through the whole chapter, I promise. But we have to pause and see that Jesus and his disciples are doing a specific kind of movement that's important for us to see. See, up until this point, Jesus has been teaching in the Jewish region. He's been interacting with Jews, but now we see him moving into a Gentile region. And this is important because the Jews had a specific way they thought about their interaction with their Gentile peers and how they were gonna be involved in the kingdom of God. They thought about the Gentiles as eventually being involved, but they thought about a very Jewish and Israel-centric kingdom of God. But Jesus is gonna shatter their understanding of that and show them that the kingdom is accessible in equal partnership to the Gentiles. Gentiles are gonna be included in the new covenant equally. And we see in Mark, Jesus is gonna do this radical movement towards inclusion, and this is the beginning of it. So in future weeks, keep your eyes open for Jesus starting to interact with the Gentiles. And one thing that is cool about this is uh, in Mark chapter one, when Jesus starts his mission with the Jews, he starts it with an exorcism miracle. And here, he's starting his mission with the Gentiles and he starts it with an exorcism miracle, which is just a cool parallel showing the equal inclusion there. Okay, we're gonna go on to verse two. And as we do, I want to encourage you to activate your imaginations and to read with your imaginations because we have narrative here, narrative story. Mark is gonna give us descriptive language. He's communicating a lot of emotion and the more you can engage your imagination and seeing and feeling some of the things we're reading, I think the better it will help you engage in this story. So try to read with your imagination but we're gonna read from verses two to five. 
And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one can bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So here we have a picture of absolute desperation. Considering the length of the story, Mark has given us a lot of language to explain how desperate this guy's situation is. He's living amongst the tombs. He's cutting himself with stones. He's crying out day and night. We're told that he's been bound with shackles around his, his arms and his feet, and he breaks them. And Mark says, no one had the strength to subdue him. If you're taking notes, you can underline that. That's meant to be a little bit of an ironic statement to juxtapose the power of everybody else who's trying to subdue him and Jesus who's gonna be able to set him free. He is in a desperate and a hopeless situation. And this is also the first time in Mark 5 where we're gonna see Jesus interfacing with some form of uncleanness. We're gonna see this happen in all three of the stories in Mark 5, but Jesus is interfacing with ritual impurity. So we need to understand a little bit about ritual impurity in order to understand the significance about this. But God had given law to the Israelites that delineated between things that were clean and unclean. And that doesn't equate to sinful and not sinful. They're not the same categories, but clean and unclean delineated when you could move freely about in your community and when you could be in worship. If you were unclean, you were removed from those things until you became clean again. So being clean was a big deal because it meant you could live, in, it meant fellowship with people and with God. Being unclean meant you had to be removed until you could become clean again. If you became unclean, you just had to go through a ritual process to become clean and then you could be restored back into community. And things that could make you unclean would be some common everyday things like different bodily fluids would make you unclean. Eating different foods would make you unclean. Certain animals were unclean. Touching a dead corpse is unclean, which is important for our story today. And another thing that's important is that uncleanness transfers. So if I'm unclean and someone is next to me and they are clean and I touch them, I do not become clean from them. They become unclean from me. And then they need to go through a process as well as I to become ritually clean before we can just move freely again in the community and in worship. So here we have Jesus interfacing with an unclean, he's a man who has an unclean spirit. Another way to translate that is a defiling spirit, to think about it like an alien invasion of this guy's body with a spirit that's defiling him. We see that he lives amongst the tombs, that's an unclean space because it's the place where dead corpses were. And we see later on that there are pigs, pigs were unclean animals. So just engage your mind to think about how the disciples must have been feeling when they get off the boat, and let alone they're interacting with this guy who's cutting himself and crying, and you know the situation would be overwhelming in and of itself, but also it's riddled with impurity, ritual impurity. And that would have been something they would have been worried about. But Jesus goes right in. And what's cool in all these stories, we're not gonna see uncleanness transfer to Jesus. Instead, we're gonna see Jesus bring restoration into these stories. Let's pick it up in verse six. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. 
Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. So now we have this man, he's approaching Jesus, and likely at this point, the man is not in himself in control. Jesus is likely interfacing with the demons here. But he comes and he falls down before Jesus. If you're taking notes, you're gonna see that phrase show up in all three of our stories. He falls down before Jesus. That word can either mean fall down in an act of worship or fall down in an act of submission. But likely in this instance, it's in an act of submission because we're gonna see with what the demons say here um, that's gonna show us that. But before we move on to looking at what they say, I wanna show you this quote that I read that I just loved. It says, here we have two spiritual powers in confrontation and the nature of the man's approach makes it certain which is superior. I love that. Picture we have Jesus and the spiritual realm in confrontation, two spiritual powers. But the man with the demons falls before Jesus. It's certain who's in superior power here. And then the man says this to Jesus. He says, what have you to do with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. So let's break down that phrase in three parts. The first part, what have you to do with me? This is an idiom that shows up both in the Old Testament and in the Gospels. And in the Gospels, frequently when it's used, it's used between demons and Jesus. And actually, one time it's used between Jesus and his mother in John chapter two, which is interesting. But the idiom gives the sentiment of this. I'm here, you're there, stay on your side and don't get in my business. It's an idiom of separation, a statement of drawing separation. And then he says, Jesus, son of the most high God. He gives him the title Jesus, son of the most high God. This is significant because up until this point in Mark, this is the most Christocentric, accurate title anyone has given to Jesus. And this is a little ironic because we're seeing that people are missing who Jesus is, but the demons know. They know exactly who he is. And then they say this, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. This is a fascinating phrase. If you're like me, I adjure you is not in your normal vocabulary. It just basically means I swear, I swear by God. This phrase would make more sense if the person performing the exorcism said it. I adjure you by God, come out of the man. But here we have the demons saying it to Jesus. So what does that mean? Mark leaves it a little ambiguous, but if we look at Matthew and Luke and their accounts of the story, we can draw likely what Mark is presupposing here. So in Matthew, Matthew says this, and behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So hold that phrase before the time. Luke says this, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. So we have before the time and into the abyss. So we can likely presuppose that what's going on here is that the demons are well aware that there is an appointed time by which God will judge them. And the abyss is a space that's associated with their judgment. They're very aware of who Jesus is. He shows up on the scene. And what they're doing is they're appealing to God the Father that they would hold their date to which they're supposed to be judged, which I don't think we can rush past that it shows us the superiority of Christ and their absolute submission to God. 
And I also want you to really take in the emotion and see that the demons here are terrified of Jesus. They know exactly who he is. They know his power. But Jesus negotiates with them. He asks them his name, and the guy says, Legion, for we are many. And when he says this, we realize, Mark has delayed the suspense until this point. We just thought this man has one demon. Now we realize there's multiple demons. Legion is a reference to a Roman military command unit of 6,000 troops. So we're not supposed to one for one that here and think, well, there's 6,000 demons. But what we are supposed to do is get the idea, get the picture of a group of beings working together in tandem towards a common goal. So now we see there's multiple demons going on here. And what do they say to Jesus? They beg him not to send them out. If you're taking notes, you can underline that word beg, it's gonna show up a lot. They beg him not to send them out and they beg him to send them into the pigs. Again, they are seeking the permission of Jesus. They are submitted to the authority and the power of Jesus. He allows them, they go into the pigs, they rush off the cliff and we're told that they drown into the sea, that there's 2,000 pigs that drown into the sea. This would have been, this is a huge herd of pigs. It would have been a a huge economic fortune for whoever owned them and lost them. And uh, Mark doesn't really give us a lot to go off of with the ethical implications of the loss of the pigs. Like that's sad, they lost their life. What about the fortune? He doesn't answer those questions. But what he does is give us an affirmation of the exorcism. We know that the exorcism happened because the spirits went into the pigs. And also, I think this says something interesting to us about the value of human life, that though God loves and cares about his creation, humans hold a certain place, and Jesus spared this man but allowed the spirits to go into the pigs. Let's pick it up in verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So here we see two responses to Jesus. And throughout his gospel, Mark is gonna show us these different responses to Jesus. First, we have the response of the townspeople who they see this man who must have been infamous in their community. Now he's sitting clothed, sane in his right mind. They hear about what happened to the pigs. They're afraid and what do they do? They beg Jesus to leave. They don't want him there. But then we have the response of the man whose life has been forever changed by Jesus and what does he do? He begs Jesus to allow him to go with him. And Jesus doesn't permit him. Instead, he turns him around and sends him back to his friends, back into his community to tell them all that God had done for him. And this is interesting. Why did Jesus not allow him to go with him? We don't really know, except for what Mark tells us, that this man is supposed to go back and share what God has done in his life, that his life has been forever changed and that Jesus has initiated this change, this powerful work. And this is cool because this is a foreshadow of the the Gentiles getting the gospel. 
We're going to see in two chapters, Jesus is going to come back in Mark chapter 7 to this region and we're going to find people who are receptive to Jesus' teaching. And likely that's a result of this man's testimony, of his telling them about how much God had done. And we also see that the results of the people who hear about what God has done in this man's life is that they marveled, they're amazed at the work of God. This is a foreshadow of the gospel going to the Gentiles. And also, it's interesting too, because if you remember, if you've been with us up until this point in Mark, when Jesus has done a miracle, he frequently has silenced them from saying anything. He'll say, he'll, he'll uh, make them sw- basically swear that they're not going to say anything. And that's interesting, because here, instead of doing that, he tells the man to go and share. Why? What's the difference here? The best explanation that I found for this is that up until this point, Jesus has been moving about in the Jewish region, in the Jewish territory. And there, the people have high expectations for what the kingdom of God is gonna look like and for what the Messiah is gonna do and what he's gonna be like. But Jesus is gonna have to transform their understanding of both of those things. And he's gonna have to do it slowly because it could result in all kinds of political upheaval, all kinds of trouble. But here, Jesus is in the Gentile region. They have no expectations for a Messiah, so they can go and share freely. So that was interesting. We can't move past this, though, without talking about the power of story, because we are supposed to be reading this and churning within us the reality of God's testimony in our life to other people and how powerful that is. I was thinking about how I like to buy most of my things on Amazon, and when I go shopping on Amazon, the first thing that I do with anything that I'm looking at is go to the reviews. I wanna know what do people have to say about this? Is it, does it work? Does it not work? Is it worth the money? Is it gonna fail? Uh, what do people say? Because people's testimony about the item I'm looking at gives me some, it draws me in. It's more powerful to me than just the description uh, that the company is giving about the item. That illustration is not a one-for-one because it's not like our testimony to Jesus supersedes what his word says about him because that stands on its own. But I think it does show the power of story within human relationships, that we are drawn to want to know what people's experiences are like. And what Jesus has done in your life is the most powerful tool you have when it comes to sharing the gospel. How has he changed you? How is he sustaining you through suffering? How is he drawing you near to him? How is he teaching you to see with greater clarity the values of the kingdom versus the values of the world? How is he transforming you to be more loving or more forgiving? Those things speak loudly. And we're supposed to read this story and churn in our own minds about sharing our own story in our circles, in our communities, with our family, with our friends. Let's go to the next scene in verse 21. And before we read from here, this is where we get the Mark and Sandwich. If you've been with us, you've heard Darren refer to this a couple times. The formal term for it is an intercalation. But a Mark and Sandwich is basically where Mark will start a story, he'll interrupt it with another story, and then he'll return back to the end of the story. And when this happens, there's a couple of different approaches on how to understand why he's doing this. One would be that the stories interlock in some way and help us interpret each other. Another would be that they're just gonna draw some common themes and cause us to think about some common themes. And that's more likely what's going on here in this one. So I've written out for you some commonalities and some contrasts in the Mark and Sandwich that exists here so that as we read through it, you can be looking for it. Commonalities in the two stories we're gonna read about, they both have to, they both reference a daughter. We've got Jairus' daughter, and then this woman gets called daughter by Jesus. 
They're both stories of Jesus healing women. They're both stories of Jesus interfacing with uncleanness. They both reference 12 years. Jairus' daughter, we're told, is 12 years old. This woman's been bleeding for 12 years. They both are situations that are desperate and hopeless. They both reference somebody falling down before Jesus. And they both are a call to faith in Christ's power and authority. And the contrasts in these two stories are the social positions of Jairus, the religious leader, and the bleeding woman. We are supposed to see a stark contrast between these two people that's gonna show us something beautiful about Jesus and how he moves throughout people's lives. So let's pick it up in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. So now we have Jesus and his disciples moving from the Gentile region back into the Jewish territory and we're told there's a great crowd and we meet a character named Jairus and we're told he's one of the leaders of the synagogue. So he had responsibility in their community that would have made him a a high position of respect. People would have prioritized him. But he comes and he's in a desperate and a hopeless situation. His little daughter who he loves is sick to the point of death. So he's heard something about Jesus and he wants Jesus to come heal his daughter. So he falls down before him, there's that phrase again, and he begs him, the ESV says implored, but it's the same word, he begs him that he would come with him. And Jesus agrees, so they move to go to Jairus' house and the crowd is about them. And then we pick it up in verse 25 and here's the intercalation, here's the insertion of another story. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. So now we meet a new character and Mark gives us a lot of descriptive language to tell us how desperate her situation is. She's been bleeding for 12 years. She has a discharge of blood. The phrase likely means a menstrual disorder that she has. 12 years, think about how long that is. Think back 12 years. She's been suffering for that long He says that she had suffered much under many physicians. This is kind of uh, paralleling that idea that no one was able to subdue the man. No one was able to help the man. No one was able to help this woman. She'd suffered under many physicians. She had spent all that she had to try to be healed and she wasn't getting better. Instead, she was growing worse. So her physical condition is absolutely terrible. But there's another dimension to this because this is the second interface we have with Jesus and uncleanness. And her unclean status would be equally as painful as her physical condition. Because the Old Testament said that when a woman had her menstrual cycle, she was unclean. It had to do with the bodily fluids. She was unclean as long as she was bleeding. And once she finished bleeding, she could go through the ritual process to become clean again and be restored back into fellowship and into worship in the normal way. But as long as she was bleeding, she remained unclean. This woman has been bleeding for 12 years. That means she's been unclean for 12 years. That means she's been ostracized from her community for 12 years, withheld from worship amongst the community for 12 years. She is low, her position is lowly. And also at this time, by the first century, the Jews had created extra like cootie rules about women and their menstrual cycles. They really did not wanna become unclean by contact with the menstruating women. So 
Mark wants us to understand the severity of her situation. She is desperate and she's hurting. Verse 27, she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So this woman, she's heard the reports about Jesus. There's a great crowd. Likely she just wants to slip into the crowd and grab a hold of his garments, which was actually a superstitious belief at the time. If you could grab the garments of someone, you could be healed. So she just wants to grab his garments. And when she does, she feels in her body that she's been healed of her disease. And likely she just wants to slip away unnoticed. But what happens, Jesus feels power go out of him and he turns around and he says, who touched me? And his disciples are like, uh, are you dumb? There's a whole crowd around you. Everybody is touching you, which is supposed to give us the irony of the disciples missing Jesus. But Jesus knows someone touched him differently. It was a touch of faith. There was some element of faith in this woman and Jesus's power and authority to heal. So now this woman is exposed. So she has to expose what she's done. So she comes and she falls down before Jesus. There's that phrase again. And she tells him the whole truth. And how does Jesus reply to her? He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Let's look at that phrase in three parts. First, daughter. He calls her daughter. This is a familial term of affection of endearment, of inclusion, which especially in the first century, family tie was the closest tie you can have. So you have to imagine for this woman to be called daughter by Jesus would be significant considering her condition, considering her ostracization, whatever that word would be, from her community. This is huge for her. And then he says, your faith has made you well. This is cool because this woman has an imperfect but a present faith. It's not perfect. She doesn't have a perfect theological construction of who Jesus is as the Messiah. She also has some superstition mixed in with her faith, right? She's thinking if I can grab his garments, but Jesus doesn't condemn her for the things she has wrong, but he sees what is present. He sees that she has some form of faith in who he is. And then he says, go in peace and be healed of your disease. And that go in peace is greater than just a goodbye. It's shalom. It's restoration, it's wholeness. This woman was not only healed of her physical condition, but now she was able to be restored into her community, restored back into worship. This woman had a face-to-face interaction with Jesus that forever changed her life, as did the demon-possessed man, had a face-to-face interaction with Jesus that changed the trajectories of their lives. Let's go to verse 35. We're gonna go back to the other story now. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. So now we go back to Jairus' story. 
And what happens, Jairus is trying to get Jesus to his daughter to save her from death, but reports come from his house that she's died. Why trouble the teacher any longer? Jairus is not thinking that Jesus is gonna raise her from the dead, but what does Jesus say? He says, do not be afraid, believe. He calls him to faith and who Jesus is. So then they go, verse 38. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. As they're approaching the house, they encounter this commotion of mourning, which is just a validation that this girl is actually dead. And Jesus says that she's just sleeping, which is kind of a weird thing for him to say, but it's hinting at this fact that there's this temporal element to her death. He's gonna wake, awaken her from death. But here we see two responses to Jesus. The crowd of mourners, what do they do? They mock him, they laugh at him. But then there's a receptivity to him by others who are gonna watch with uh, perplexity and question and openness about what Jesus is gonna do. So he goes into the house and he brings the child's parents and those who are with him, which is likely Peter, James, and John. And what does he do? He grabs the girl by the, the hand, which is our third interface with uncleanness. This is a dead corpse. He grabs her by the hand and he says to her, rise, and she gets up. And then he says, give her something to eat, which I just think is a beautiful addition that shows Jesus' compassion, his awareness of our humanity, his care for her. We see that there's a response of amazement, of looking at the work of Jesus and being amazed at what he's doing, at who he is, at the power that he has. And we see that Jesus tells them not to tell anyone, which is interesting, we here have that messianic secret again, likely because he's back in Jewish territory, so he has to control the narrative. One thing that's cool about this too is for the first century Jews, they thought of the Old Testament prophets like they're superheroes. They were their Spider-Man and Superman and Iron Man, whichever superhero you want. They, that's how they thought of the prophets. And amongst the prophets, there were like the premier prophets, the coolest prophets, which were Elijah and Elisha. Because not only did they get the words of God for people, their people, not only were they able to perform miracles, but Elijah and Elisha performed resurrection miracles. They brought people back from the dead. So these were the coolest prophets. But if you have an eye to look for it, you'll see the gospel writers hint and show us, this would have been caught by a first century audience, that Jesus is greater than even the greatest Old Testament prophets. Because when Jesus raises someone from the dead, he doesn't go through rituals or incantations like Elijah and Elisha did, who argued with God about it, or who laid on a child's body and got up and laid on the body again and the body came back to life. Here Jesus speaks by the words of his mouth and the touch of his hand and he raises her from the dead. Jesus is greater than all the greatest Old Testament prophets. His power and authority is unmatched. He is the true Messiah with power and authority over all things. So as we come to the end of this chapter, we have the opportunity to think about how these themes affect us. How do they affect our lives in 2023? The first one we're gonna talk about is Jesus bringing healing to all stratas of society. We've seen Jesus interact with people who represent different spaces in their social ladder. 
people who people wouldn't want to associate with, people who people would prioritize. But Jesus shows no favoritism amongst them. The kingdom of God is open to anybody who wants to receive it, anybody. It is open. Doesn't matter how good you are, doesn't matter how bad you are. It doesn't matter your ethnicity, your origins. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter if you've gone to church, if you've tithed to the church, if you never have, it doesn't matter. If you want to receive the kingdom of God, it is open for you. And Jesus demonstrates that by this lack of favoritism, his willingness to be interrupted, even with a high profile Jewish official to care for a bleeding, unclean Jewish woman. It's accessible to all. Paul says in Galatians 3, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So the question for us is, do we as individuals who follow Christ and as a community who follow Christ, are we allowing our lives to reflect this reality? Are we, is our church reflective of the kingdom of God, which should look like a band of misfits who don't belong together, but are together because of our shared common humanity and together because of the unifying love of Christ within us, the saving power of Christ in our lives. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. Are we creating factions amongst us? Are we only associating with people who are comfortable for us? Or are we reflecting this open and willing attitude to, to demonstrate the kingdom within our own lives and within our own church? It's the first question. The second, third, and fourth themes we're gonna kind of blend together as we think about our application. Christ has the messianic authority and power. We find people in absolutely desperate and hopeless situations, and we see a call to faith. We are reminded by these stories that Christ holds superiority to all things. All things are subject to him, everything. And we meet people who have been trying to be healed and can't be, and Jesus is able to meet them in that place and bring them healing and restoration. And there's a call for us to have faith in his capability, faith in his power. As I was reflecting on these stories and thinking about my own life, I came across the question within my own mind of, well, what do we do when we read these stories of Jesus bringing immense and miraculous physical healings? Because sometimes we don't experience that. People can experience that. God does do that in some people's lives, but he doesn't do that in all of our lives. And the message is not have more faith and then God will physically heal you right now of your disease. That's not the message. So what are we supposed to do as we look at these? I think these miracles are serving to authenticate Jesus's messianic ministry, which is pushing us towards a greater faith in a greater sense of restoration and healing. We see in these stories that Jesus cares and he's tender with each person he interacts with. He cares about their physical needs. He cares about their lives. And we know that God cares about ours as well. But we are called to hope in a God who will one day bring full restoration and our physical bodies are included in that. In the final kingdom, we will be resurrected into new bodies that are healed and whole. But in the meantime, as we wait for that, as we have faith, the question is, do we have faith that Jesus is who he says he is? Are we willing to look him face to face and allow him to transform our understanding of ourselves and of his love, of his presence in our lives, of what he's doing in the midst of our suffering, of how he's delivering us from our situations? I wanna close with a verse from 2 Corinthians 4. 
but I think is encouraging for us in this regard. It says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Here we see that Paul is saying God's glory is displayed in the face of Christ. Looking into the face of Christ, we see the glory of God. We've had three stories from Mark 5 of people who interface with Christ face to face and their lives are transformed. But we're also told in this passage that we've been given this treasure, this mystery of God's great love in these jars of clay, fragile, broken human bodies, and it shows us that the power belongs to God, not to us. So my question as we get ready to move into our response time is would you consider, one, are you desperate? Do you find yourself in a time of desperation? Because I think being in times of desperation allows us to see a little bit clearer. Two, do you believe that Christ will meet you? Three, are you willing to look him face to face and allow his love, his wisdom, who he is as his person to transform you, to draw you in, to wait for however long you have to wait for your healing, to know that he cares and he sees you and that his restoration is more holistic than we can ever even imagine. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we have in Mark 5 these beautiful stories of your beautiful son who his beauty is so great, it's, it's hard to express. It's hard for us to even fathom. But I pray by the power of your spirit that you would open our eyes to see him and to behold him, to be transformed by him. I pray that you would meet people exactly where they're at, minister to their hearts, and through your spirit, draw them into your presence, into trust, into faith in who you are. Thank you that you never give up on us, that you're always present and with us, and we love you. In your name we pray, amen.